0: Hey, everybody. A quick note before the show. I have just finished reading, I mean, literally about an hour ago, I have just finished reading a new novel by former Elder Sign guest host Sun Yi Dean. And I really love this book, and I think that you will too. So I want to tell you a little bit about it. The book is called The Book Eaters, and, uh, well, is exactly what it says on the box there. It is about people who eat books. The story is set in the real world, our world, but the speculative element is that there is a hidden society, a secret society of people who look like humans, but aren't. And the fact that they consume books instead of pizza is really just one part of what makes them different from the rest of us. And getting a chance to explore this really evocative, really imaginative world that Dean has constructed, this was a huge part of the fun for me. Thematically, the book is an awesome exploration of the fairy tales that we give to children and then also the fantasy literature that has grown out of that fairy tale tradition. And let me read a a few lines to you just to give you a taste, a little tease. They were princesses of a kind, and this was how princesses lived. Safe in towers, married to men who competed for them one way or another. Even in the happiest fairy tales, princesses did not usually have much choice. They were prizes to be won or given away, and there was no other context in which she could understand life. And if that passage grips you the way that it gripped me, I hope you'll do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of The Book Eaters by Sun Deen. To make that easy for you, I have put a link in the show notes, but of course, you'll also be able to find this book at your local shop. Again, that is The Book Eaters by Sun Deen. Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is the first of two discussion episodes that we are going to dedicate to Chapter 4 of Peace. And we're going to organize our discussion. Both of these episodes, we're going to organize them around the the characters or groups of characters whom we're interacts with in this chapter. We're going to be saving the golds for the second episode and, and a few other things for that episode as well. But uh, leaving the golds aside then, Brandon, I guess, where should we start this first episode? Well, we have a
1: few introductory things to do first before we get to the characters or or groups of characters, as you put it, uh, chapter four is the second longest chapter in peace. and it's a chapter that's really about weir's middle age. Uh, the hook of the chapter is that we're going to learn about this buried treasure situation with Lois Arbuthnot. We'll talk about that later, and that that was hinted at in chapter three. And the bits about this event, this treasure hunt, are really the the page turner elements of the chapter. But as I said, what the chapter is chiefly concerned with is old man Weir in his home office, though he does change locations twice, uh, reminiscing about this period of his life when Lois Arbuthna and the Gold family were the focal points of his social relationships. And so through these characters, Weir and also Wolf is able to make a lot of callbacks to previous chapters and cast previous events in a new light. Though, you know, which Weir we are to believe is a bit tricky. That sentence maybe is even a bit tricky. (laughs) I also suspect that uh, because there are some sections in this chapter that feel sort of out of place to me, Weir is also priming us for the final chapter of the novel. That may not be the case. And so then we're really left with some, I don't know, errata. But I I have to say, Glenn, that while I find this book compulsively readable, I'm constantly flipping between sections and chapters and I'm rereading stuff. I've read chapter four a number of times at this point now too. And I feel like even at this point, we're not really being given a clear picture of the story of the novel. Uh, And so, yeah, I'm actually not too hopeful that chapter five is going to clear anything up for us. So because this chapter is full of these callbacks to the rest of the book, I think we have a lot of work to do today uh, in order to bring as much into focus as possible in order to get a sense of the story behind Weir's memoir. And I think chapter four does give us some tools
0: to do this. I think what you're pointing to, Brandon, is something that we have talked about, uh, I think, off and on as we've been covering this novel, which is that one of our big topics in the the wrap-up when we are done with this novel, still many, many months hence, is the extent to which these chapters feel self-contained, the extent to which Peace feels very similar to The Fifth Head of Cerberus as being a collection of related or intertwined novellas. And chapter four really felt that way to me, I think more so than some of the earlier chapters that we've dealt with, even if I think technically probably chapter two and chapter three feel more standalone because of what you're pointing to, Brandon, the The way in which chapter four is calling back so much to those other chapters. But I actually think that all of that calling back kind of serves really to reinforce the extent to which these chapters are are, are feeling kind of isolated and feeling kind of standalone in very interesting ways.
1: Right. This technique to call back to all of the stuff that we've done before I agree with you. It really does feel like the structure of the novel then is meant to be standalone because that callback, uh, to me, maybe because I've read this chapter so many times and read the book up to this chapter or through this chapter, you know, two or three times now, highlights or makes me feel like those callbacks have this artificial component to them uh, that Wolf as a writer. Or at least the editor might have suggested to Wolf that he put these like uh, you really need to highlight this at this point for the reader uh, because this chapter chapter four really is in, in some senses the penultimate chapter of the novel uh, that has all these callbacks so it does feel like it's trying to tie everything together and. So yeah, I agree with you. It does highlight the way in which every other chapter feels almost independent of the others, even though we're looking at these periods of one man's life. But anyway, you know, in in order to get to this more abstract stuff that you you and I are hinting about here, and I don't know how much more of that we'll really do, we'll see how these episodes turn out uh, as we talk through all of the things we need to get through as I said, you know we have to talk about these events in Chapter Four and and see how they jive with our understanding of what we know so far. And as we've been hinting at, there is a lot to tackle here. And and I think we should start with the more broad uh, and more basic questions of the text. And so here I'm finally answering your question of where to start, (laughs) and then we'll find our way into the more specific elements of the chapter, like you know the visit to Stuart Blaine and the treasure hunt and uh, Weir's general inability to convince us that he's a decent human being. But the first thing I'd like to investigate is this, Glenn, have we changed our opinion on the setting of the story
0: at all? Like, do we at least know at this point what state this story takes place in? Right. I, I think it is fair to say that we are not in Kansas anymore. That's uh, I think <laughs> something we can say definitively. And, and this is really all on, on me, this, this question. This is something that, that came up on the, the forums and uh, uh, some other, other communication methods that we have with, with listeners as well. And we're, we're really grateful for that. And I know there's a bit of a story here, I guess, about my own experience with this novel that I will uh, come back to in a moment. But I will say that one of the things that we've pointed out earlier in our coverage of this novel is uh, my realization that the river, <laughs> the the, the Kanekasi River in Cashinsville, is flowing backwards. It's flowing the wrong way, right? And uh, to me, you know, I made this argument or suggestion that perhaps that meant that we were in some kind of bizarro world or something like that. And uh, uh, listeners took to the forums and email and Twitter and so on and said, Perhaps rather than taking the fact that the river is flowing to the west as evidence that we are in some speculative setting, uh, you might just you might just revisit where you think we are. <laughs> like in the real world, right? Revisit those assumptions there, and of course, yes, obviously that—that's the thing that makes the most sense. I jumped straight to the conspiracy theory, and um, you know that was fun. That was fun while it lasted. But uh, we have been operating on the assumption that this story is taking place in Kansas, or that you know Cassonsville is in Kansas, and this is just not true. And it has never been true. And I know I'm not alone. I'm not the only Gene Wolf fan who's in in this boat. And I don't quite know where this got started. But for me, at least, I have long taken as a given that Cassonsville is in Kansas, because back in 2006, when I had uh, just finished... Wizard Night and was thinking about what Gene Wolfe should I read next, I took to the internet and asked the internet that question. Which Gene Wolfe book that I haven't read should I read next? And was then looking at little summaries of you know what the books were, really just looking for like what's the setting, uh, what, uh, what voice is this in, that sort of thing, to kind of see what mood uh, I was in. And saw that piece was described as not being heavy on speculative fiction and was just a story that takes place in a small town in Kansas. And I said, yeah, you know, I think that's what I'm in the mood for. But there is actually nothing in the text ever that says Kansas. Uh, there is uh, in *The Changeling*, which also takes place in Cassonsville, but it very clearly says that when the protagonist of *The Changeling* gets out of Fort Leavenworth prison, he drives through Kansas and is out of Kansas very quickly, and then is some you know gets to Castonville and Castonville then very clearly is perhaps somewhere near Kansas but not in Kansas. So uh that's at least uh phase one of answering your question, Brandon. Well th- thanks for
1: <laughs> correcting the record here about Kansas. I I think that uh this story has to be taking place in in Ohio, in the Ohio River Valley perhaps. Uh and and I think we went to lengths um to try to Make this take place in like Illinois or something like that. We have somewhere between Chicago and St. Louis, uh, or or just like this generic Midwest setting. We said, but I think the William Quantrill piece that he was born around here and him being born in Ohio, that's got to be the case. Then I think we don't have to do too much extra digging. But uh, I wonder if you had a second opinion on that.
0: Yeah, I, I actually disagree. I think that this is Illinois. I think it's Central Illinois, and there are arguments for this that other readers have made. Certainly, I mean, we were exposed to many of them. Our, our forum and so on, and we really appreciate that uh, that input. That was a great uh, a great forum thread. But I do think that Kanawha though the 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 river here, uh, sounds an awful lot like the Kankakee River. Uh, Gene Wolfe and his wife Rosemary are from uh, Peoria, Illinois, uh, and a lot of the geography, I will say, and even a lot of the cultural attitudes actually strike me as very much being uh, Illinoisan. And I you know I say that as a as a native Illinoisan, though from from northern Illinois from. From Chicagoland, rather than from from Central Illinois, uh, I also think that the weather that is described actually makes more sense for the plains uh, than it would for the o- Ohio River Valley as well.
1: Well, then I guess we'll leave this unsettled for now and uh, continue along in our journey through Chapter Four. There's one more bit of orienteering I'd like to do, you know, before we dig into the meat of the chapter, and that's to nail down Weir's age. Uh, in this chapter. I know we've suggested how old we think he is already, you know, in our recap episodes. Uh, But I want to restate the case in case we have folks just tuning into our discussion episodes. I'm comfortable saying that Weir is 45 years old in this chapter. Uh, The key piece of evidence is that Lois points out that the fake treaty between the Blains and the Iroquois was created 40 years ago. And we know that that Creation of this treaty took place at Weir's fifth birthday party. So, I mean, you know, if you do some quick math, you'll get to 45 pretty easily. There are a few other hints throughout the chapter. Um, Sherry says Weir is 40 or 45, but the main piece of evidence is this mention of the treaty and then Weir's birthday party. But apart from Weir being 45, do you have any sense of the year this chapter takes place in?
0: We have only one precisely datable piece of evidence in the chapter, and that is this biography of Amanda Ross that the Cassonsville Library has. This is Oh Rare Amanda by uh, Jack Luden. Uh, this was published in 1954. I think you, you brought this up in the, the recap episodes, Brandon. But this then definitely means that we are in 1954 or later. We do also have Lois used the term bobby soxer to describe Sherry Gold. This is a phrase that was current in the 40s and 50s. So that's you know something that we can use that's datable. It's not precisely dateable, but that, that helps us out as well.
1: Yeah, the piece about the bobby soxer is really interesting to me because Lois acts as though that's the term that like when she was younger. She would have used that term to describe sixteen year old kids and that would have put her in her like twenties and the forties and now she's thirty-five. So like again, that really emphasizes this mid fifties time period.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And as for Weir's age. You know, I don't know that we're ever going to be entirely precise about that. Weir does tell us that he was a rich man by 50. And in this moment, right, he has not yet inherited the company from Julius Smart. So we know that he is under 50. So yeah, I do think that 45-ish anyway is about right here, maybe even, you know, 42 or 43. Uh, Certainly Lois thinks of him as within her demographic, and she's described by Weir as appearing anyway to be third, Or 35. I think a a 10 year age difference seems right for this period in American social history, right? You know, the history of dating in America, that this would be a period in which uh, a 10 year age difference, a man being 10 years older than a woman, would have been considered normal.
1: Yeah. Among the people who have attempted a timeline of this novel, uh, there's always a weird five year period gap that no one really knows what to do with. So I I think 40 to 45 is absolutely right. And we'll be talking about evidence of that gap uh, probably at the end of our second episode. But now that we've got some of these basics down, some of this context and setting business, uh, at least narrowed down, if not entirely taken care of, let's dig into the chapter. There's a lot to cover, we said. And I think uh, I'd like to start with the trip to Stuart Blaine's in order to revisit the Chinese egg story and examine some of the reasons why we have all these callbacks in this chapter, and then we'll be able to look at all the stuff that's new to the book in this chapter. So Weir visits Stuart Blaine because Ron Gold, who is Weir's coworker or someone who reports to Weir, it's unclear, uh, asks Weir about a book that Ron's dad, Louis Gold, sold to Blaine. The book is The Lusty Lawyer by Amanda Ross, and Weir at this point has a suspicion that the book is a fake and wants to confirm it. So he visits the old Stuart Blaine in his new home. There's a weird you know, side trip to a housing development that Weir takes, and as I said, we're going to discuss that in a little bit. But what I want to focus on is what's going on during this visit. Blaine, we learn, has a surgical scar that he hides with a beard. He is old and feeble. And we're told by Weir that Blaine's memory is failing. And I guess we're going to have to decide whether or not, or the degree to which we believe Weir when he says this, because Blaine's memories contradict Weir's in a few instances. And we get some new information also that Weir corroborates in other instances. But We are immediately given to believe that there's something off with Blaine because he calls Den Jimmy, even though he has Dennis's business card, and he calls Jimmy McAfee Roscoe. Weir compares Blaine to an already mad King Lear, and we learn that Blaine's hands are like claws, so this is altogether a grotesque and unsympathetic portrait that makes us as Weir's audience want to believe Weir's claims about Blaine's faulty memory. But before we look into the Chinese egg story, and then also Julius Smart's story, I want to ask you, Glenn, if you have any sense as to why Blaine calls Den Jimmy?
0: And also, is Roscoe just Blaine's nickname for McAfee? Right, so Roscoe is actually Jimmy McAfee's father. Is that the founder of the McAfee department store? And I suspect then that what has happened here with Blaine is simply that he has a jumble of names in his mind that are associated with the 1920s, and that he has he's mixed them up. Right, he knows that somebody close to Olivia was named Jimmy, but he thinks of McAfee's as belonging to Roscoe and. Jimmy is a diminutive, right? So it must go with a kid in the story or something like that, right? I can, you know, see that happening, right? Because I think that, all of us in middle age or later can relate to this sort of thing, this kind of <laughs> mixing up of names, forgetting someone's name, but being sure what letter it starts with and all all of that sort of thing. And, you know, just to be fair to Blaine as well, he actually does know that he doesn't know Weir's name and he just guesses Jimmy. And even then there's a question mark and Weir doesn't correct him. So he just carries on calling him Jimmy. So I think the, the real lesson here is, uh, you know, correct people when they have your name wrong.
1: Yeah, except there's also a rule if you're interacting with um, elderly people and there's some confusion and dementia that you have to play by improv rules, which is yes and. And I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I think that Dan is doing a pretty good job of that here. I, I really like this explanation and it hadn't occurred to me that that's the case. But it feels really right for this text. There's, uh, you know, in some of the scholarship around this, you know, Roscoe is a uh, term for a handgun that came out of the pulp fiction era of hard boiled detectives. And that might indicate that, you know, Jimmy McAfee was a really violent person on some level. But I I think this explanation is right. I remember when I visited my great grandmother, oh, probably two weeks or so before she passed uh, with my grandparents. She was very confused about, you know, who everybody was. She was slipping in and out of calling people by different names and then I, you know, I came in and I said hello to her and gave her a hug. And, uh, my grandmother asked her if she knew who I was. And she said, of course I do. That's Nancy's boy. And and Nancy's my mom's name. And I was like, that's something I'll always carry with me because (laughs) she was 92 and she, uh, was, was in the final moments of her life and (laughs) remembered me, even if she didn't know my name, she knew who I was. And, uh, I don't know. I liked, I liked your explanation a lot more than some of the other things I've read. I think because I have a, a personal connection to somebody mixing up people's names and remembering things out of order, which is actually in the book. Uh, we see uh, in the opening of the story, we're trying to rearrange lives in chronological order, but he can't do it, even though he's referring to magazines. I think the pun there is, uh, is, is pertinent to what's going on with Blaine here.
0: No, I think I think that that's right and I actually think that this bit of the story is a, just a great Example of exactly the sort of story that you're telling about your your grandmother. You know, I I have those stories about my grandparents as as well. And Wolf you know, wrote this book when he was in middle age in his in his forties, and so presumably had begun to see his parents and Rosemary's parents you know, get to the 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 age where this sort of thing starts to happen—the mixing up of names, the mixing up of memories, and so on. And I I think it's very realistically portrayed. It's a it's a realistic portray portrayal and, and actually I think a really sympathetic portrayal, though, you know, to be clear, I think neither of us is on Team Stuart Blaine here. But nonetheless, this is a sympathetic portrayal of aging that, that seems like it's from someone who's who's got this going on in his own life at this point.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And and yes, we're not Team Blaine. He's evil, as many of the characters in this book are, though that's going to be something we really examine in our final wrap-up episodes on the on the whole novel. During this visit though, uh, and this visit lasts longer than Weir narrates, or it may be the case that Weir visits Blaine a number of times. Blaine gives us a revision of the Chinese egg story. Blaine remembers that Olivia had initially ended up with the egg, but that Jimmy McAfee made Olivia give the egg to him at one of Judge Bold's Christmas parties that took place prior to Prohibition, so sometime before 1920. In this case, in this retelling of the Chinese egg story here, Weir doesn't interrupt and he continues to let Blaine talk about how he made a killing during the Depression. So that's really what Blaine is into. So, the first thing I want to ask you here, Glenn, is whether you feel we are meant to take Weir's silence on the matter of the Chinese egg as acceptance of Blaine's version. And then I want to ask if you think there's reason to doubt Blaine's account. Blaine was an adult at this time period and has a different sense of what was going on. Maybe he was much more aware of what was going on than, than Weir was. So yeah, what's your sense of what's going on here with this revision that Weir is really putting in here for us as the audience of his memoir?
0: Right, yeah, so just to answer your first question with a pretty simple statement, and that you know that question is 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 Weir's silence on this issue an acceptance of blaine's version and and I just think the answer to that is no. And part of where this works is that Weir is writing this story for us. He knows he has already written down his account of this. And so in some ways, this is here to show that, Blaine's memory is questionable here at this point, but still Blaine does have some insights about what is happening here that you point to. And I do think that Blaine being an adult and and being an adult involved in this love, I don't know, is it a quadrangle? Unclear to me what shape it is, par- but there's a parallelogram. Lot parallelogram, right? There's a lot of, a lot of dating, overlapping dating going on here, right? Among these adults who are at this party, Blaine is aware of that in ways that Dan simply cannot be because of his his youth here. And then also Blaine is going to be a lot more aware of you know, the significance of, of glasses and gestures and so on, and have just much more insight into the, the subtext of those personal dramas than uh, a child or even an adolescent, I think, can. And I, again, I think this is something that we all can relate to in our own lives. But I will say that, you know, thinking about why then we would we would take Weir's version of this over Blaine's. I mean, for one thing, I think the party itself stands out more to Weir because of the ghost story, also because it was happening at his own house. And I think that that's definitely a place where we have to trust Weir's account there, right? That when something is at your own house, you're going to remember that with much more detail and much more vividly. And especially then you would remember if this were a party that you had to go to as a child for some event, because you would remember that part of the event and kind of the specialness of this. And that's just not at all the way that Weir describes this party. Weir describes his presence at this party as if he's, uh, oh, fifth wheel isn't quite right, but that he's, he's there simply because he lives in the house. And that's very clear in the way that he's e- even narrating it. But there are some other problems then, just factually, with the way that Blaine presents his understanding of when this party was, which is just to say that it could not have been before Prohibition because Weir was not living with Olivia then. So I think even just that external evidence supports Weir's version of events rather than Blaine's. But ultimately, I think this just circles back around to the fact that Blaine's memory is well, he's he's senile, right? I think senile is the word that we would use here. It may just be that he's suffering the normal effects of of aging that most of us are going to to have when we approach his age. It may be that he's got some early symptoms of of dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that as well. But in, at any rate, clearly, it's it's his memory is is faulty here, and Weir's is not.
1: Yeah. What what I think we can take from this story is the confusion around the egg, I think that that might have stuck out to McAfee. This egg we know was the talk of the whole town. We already saw that you know, in chapter two. And so it it would have been a big event perhaps for the town when Olivia would have had to give the egg up, which we also know happened, or at least in my reading of this event, that she did get it initially and then had to give it to McAfee. I think that Blaine is right about that, but I agree with you. The timeline cannot be right. It can't be a party prior to prohibition. Weir wouldn't, I think, have been at the Bold's Christmas party anyway. Remember, the Bold's are the in-laws of the Blacks. uh, And Weir had, through this uh, accident as a child, uh, ended up inadvertently killing the child of the Blacks. So, you know, there's no way he would have been at a social event at the Bold's house, as far as I know. Olivia might not have even been there. So there's a lot of reasons why this version of the story can't be true. But I think there's little truths buried in it. And I think we can safely say that because of the next story that we get with Blaine, uh, which is the true conclusion of the ghost story from Julia Smart in chapter three, we learn that Tilly experimented on his wife, and she ended up deformed. As a result, Tilly's wife died by drowning in her menthol coffin. Now, Weir does corroborate the facts of this story, like w- what was in that secret bedroom, you know, what really happened here. Uh, but he also quibbles with one thing that Blaine says about the location of the laboratory in the house. And I think in our recap episode, here's another correction. I suggested that Weir quibbles with Blaine over Weir's age at the time of McAfee's 41st birthday party. Uh, but I, upon rereading this, I don't really think that's the case. So I think we can say maybe that Weir really was 14 or 15 at the time of McAfee's birthday party. Maybe we can put that argument on hold, but uh, we don't have to. <laughs> so that would have been 30 years ago. So sometime not too long after 1924. I'm tracking time a little bit to help us you know, when we complete the novel and you and I have to do our own timeline project here. I've already got the poster board paper out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also, um, I'm trying to make sense of how much time has passed between the affair of the Chinese egg and the Julius Smart story. You can play along with us if you like. But uh, in any event, Glenn, first, I want to ask you what effect is getting the quote unquote, you know, real end of the Tilly ghost story have on you at this point? I mean, when you came across this, what was your reaction?
0: Well, I'm going to delay answering that question, Brandon, because I I, I actually don't want to table the the issue of Weir's age here. (laughs) I I do actually want to quibble with playing about Weir's age at that party. I think that he is closer to 10. He's certainly prepubescent. Uh, I've got a number of reasons for this, but one of them is simply that he is clearly Weir. I mean, is clearly a child and not a teenager when visiting the department store. The Chinese egg stuff is all happening over the course of a year or less. and, And it's the summer that he's visiting that department store. And then it's really only a few months later that Olivia gets serious about Julius Smart.
1: Right. Weir gives us the sense that he's probably around 10 years old because of Margaret Lawrence's age. And we know she's a little older than he was, and she was right on the edge of puberty. But also this takes place in the summer, really close to the 4th of July with the Chinese egg, because uh, McAfee's birthday is in August. So this is all kind of happening around the same yeah, the same summer. It certainly feels like in Weir's narration.
0: Yeah, I think that that's right. And and then there's some circumstantial evidence as well, which is to say that a year after Olivia's marriage to Julia Smart, Olivia is still having Weir visit her while she's taking a bath. And I think that doesn't indicate, but strongly suggest to me that she still considers him a child at that point. And then also Weir tells us that when his parents return home from their, their tour of, of Europe and the Mediterranean, his mother is doing things like, you know, fussing about whether his attire is appropriate for the weather, which to me also suggests that we're at this point was younger than 14 or 15. I mean, he definitely wasn't at an age when a parent should be doing that. But I think the fact that that was not obvious and clear to his mother suggests also that he was still maybe not prepubescent at that point, but pubescent, right. That he's, he's not, you know, you know, playing football on the, the high school football team or something like that at, at this point.
1: Right. We, we know that we're lived with Aunt Olivia and uh, Uncle Julius for two years after they got married. But I am really torn. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm super torn about which timeline I buy into. And, uh, it's, I don't know, it's a bee in my bonnet, but uh, I'm glad we have totally different (laughs) perspectives on this, even though I'm totally open to being swayed because I just don't know. There's a lot of, I think, arguments that go kind of both ways, depending on how you're looking at some of the events of, of the story. But I agree with you that Weir is 10 during the events of the Chinese egg, which means that he must have been 10 or 11. It's the same summer, right? That's how it reads. In the Julius Smart story. So I don't know. It's very strange to me. But maybe you can answer my real question now was, (laughs) what, what was it like for you when you were reading this chapter and got this corroborated true ending to the Tilly ghost story?
0: Yeah, I I definitely liked the original ending that just had us wondering what was in the mysterious locked door. Like that to me was the perfect ending for that story. I think Wolf agreed to be honest. <laughs> why he actually ends the story there, and it is really fun. I mean, I, I love the trick right of giving us the last bit of it. I mean, it's like fifty pages later, right? And that is really well done. I think that's I, I can see Gene Wolf laughing right at his at his own own trickery, his own gimmick. Here and I, I do think it's great, but still, I'm not sure actually that this solves the mysteries so much as it gives us new mysteries. For one, This version here that we get, this is filtered through Blaine's memory of the story rather than than Weir's memory of the story. And Blaine is making a lot of assumptions that don't necessarily have to be true. So, you know, we don't really know how Mrs. Tilly ended up in this tank. We don't know what was going on with all the ghost stuff. Blaine certainly thinks that Mrs. Tilly was alive and was getting out of the room but Mr. Tilly himself was super afraid of a ghost, right? He was afraid of a a ghost that might even get to him in a diner. So, you know, I think it might even be the case that she was already dead when Julius moved in, but you know, that Blaine has already dismissed that. But I think that, you know, the, the answer that he gives or his, his interpretation of the ghost story is simply that it's one interpretation of many. And I, I don't even think it's the one that I would prefer.
1: We also have to remember that when Weir tells us this ghost story, in the middle of him telling us the ghost story, he says he told it again to Margaret Lorne at a certain point and embellished it for her as an audience, as he's doing now for us as an audience, as we're getting <laughs> it. And so I think part of what's going on here is he's trying to get us this more objective end to the story. Um but also showing us that we are getting his interpretation of what happened, which you you also pointed out, which is it it seems clear that Mrs. Tilly was dead, and that's why the room was locked, and that Mr. Tilly was living with a a dead woman. But I think on another level, what we're seeing here is... Some of the scaffolding peeking through. I mean, only if you've read this chapter like three times on on, on the back of reading the book up through this point a couple times. Um, that part of what Wolf is doing in this chapter, and I really mean Wolf here, is just highlighting stuff that we should be paying attention to. And this image of Tilly in the laboratory with this woman in the bath is repeated in this chapter with Smart in the laboratory and onto Livia in the bath. It's, it's an image we'll look at a little bit more in detail later. But I also feel as though this echo of images and repetition of images is something that Wolf wants us to look at uh, in particular, and is highlighting it a lot in this, in this chapter.
0: One of the questions that we'll we'll have, I don't know if we'll we'll tackle that here at the end of chapter four, if we'll save it for the, the wrap-up at the end of the book, Brandon. But of course, one of the things that we will have to talk about is Olivia's death, which we, we really only learn about in this chapter, and uh, the nature of it, and maybe if, if there's any culpability uh, for that, you know, that rests on someone in the story. So something that then we will perhaps have to consider, given the pairing of these images that you've just brought up, is whether or not we're somehow blames Julius for Olivia's death or or even maybe more specifically even suspects him of some kind of foul play or something like that. I mean, like just to be clear, Elizabeth and I have been watching a lot of Murder She Wrote, so I just you know I think everything is a locked room murder mystery at this point. But.
1: Yeah, everything uh, becomes a cozy mystery when when that's what you're watching. It's happening to me too. I've been watching Midsummer Murders, and uh, everything feels like a cozy mystery
0: now. Yeah, it's just really the only difference is whether or not we're putting unnecessary use in words. <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: I uh, yeah. It's 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 wild this this end here and the repetition of image is uh, that, that really is even going to be called out later on in this chapter, and we'll get to that too. Uh, but even the structure of the family, of Tilly's family, is sort of repeated in the structure of Olivia, Julius, and Weir's time with the family. They had a ch- a boy, he's no longer there. Uh, Weir is, you know, for all intents and purposes, the son of Olivia and Julius for the time when they're married, and then he's no longer there, and then Olivia dies. So there's a lot, it's just a lot of strange repetition and maybe conflict of events that I think we really see around the carnival stuff uh, that we're really going to have to deal with. My gut is to cover all of that at the end of the book, because uh, it's going to play into, I think, how we read the novel. Was there anything else though, Glenn, that really jumped out to you about the visit to Blaine's house?
0: Well, I just want to reiterate that uh, this guy is terrible. Blaine is terrible. I would rather live in the town where Lex Luthor is the wealthy businessman villain, because at least he has style. Blaine just sickens me here. All of this business about using the depression to prey on people and, and laughing about it now and proclaiming the obligation that wealthy people have to continue trying to get wealthier and wealthier, because being wealthy and accruing even more wealth is a kind of art form. And it's its own fun. It's its own beauty. To compare that then to like things that actually are art forms, like painting and literature and so on, is just really despicable to me. And this business even of calling this an art form, Wolf brilliantly juxtaposes this with Blaine's hobby as a book collector, uh, someone who in chapter two told us that he always wanted to be an English professor, but never got to do that, that he loves literature. And here we see him now engaged in using his wealth to engage in the hobby of collecting books, but he doesn't even read them. He's it's it's just something for him to collect and to lock up in a room and then to bequeath to the nearby university, which is also going to lock them up in a room and restrict who has access to them. All of that to me is just is just grotesque.
1: It is. Blaine is Blaine is an evil man. Uh, as you know, I can't emphasize this enough. Almost every character in this novel displays some traits of behavior that we would call evil in the way that it comes across, but it's also we've come to accept as normal in our culture. And, and Blaine is one example of that. Okay, we should uh, move on here and talk about Lois Arbuthnot and the buried treasure scene. We'll talk about both the buried treasure story and Weir's relationship with Lois Arbuthna. I want to talk about the relationship first because it's uh, more central to the chapter, I think, than the business about the buried treasure hunt, even though the treasure hunt is the hook. Uh, But I think that any reader is going to be left with an impression about what happens with the treasure hunt and the way that it ends Weir and Lois' relationship. And we're going to have to think about that as well. I'm sure you and I both have ideas about what Weir isn't saying about the outcome of the treasure hunt. And uh, that'll be fun to get to. But let's talk about Lois Arbuthnot as a character and the way she interacts with Weir. We learn a few things in the text about Lois as a person. We've brought some of these up already. She's about 35. She's divorced. Uh, She's from St. Louis, where she was a librarian. But she wanted to be head librarian and not just uh, one of many. And that's what brought her to Cassiansville. She's really interested in local genealogies and local history. Uh, She also, I guess, like most of us, likes to get drunk and fool around. But mostly... She becomes fixated on some buried treasure and enlists Weir's help in seeking it out and I guess that's her character motivation. Uh so I have really two questions here about Lois as a character and your response to her as a reader Glenn. What do you make of her, and is she a good romantic fit for Weird? <laughs> I
0: I do think that she is. I'll talk about that in a second. Before I, I do though, I, I I want to give uh, the second mea culpa of uh, of the episode. The first was on you know thinking that uh, cashinsville was in Kansas, but here uh, I I was insistent, I guess, on on one of the recap episodes. Perhaps I guess it must have been the first one that we met her uh, that that Arbuthnot is a a French name. You corrected me, and I accepted your correction, but uh, in in addition to watching way too much Murder, She Wrote, uh, I also recently have uh, reread Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. And uh, there's a character in that book with this name who is Clearly not French, and it's clear, and that's a book that I read when I was uh, ten years old, maybe nine years old, even, and I feel like i uh, just letting myself down by not not retaining that information. So, uh, just uh, I, I don't know. I say a lot of stupid stuff on the show, probably every week. That's probably not the dumbest thing that I've ever said, actually, but it kind of feels like it to me. So I wanted to give just another uh, another apology and point out my own boneheadedness there.
1: Yeah, at some point we're going to have to, you know, record everything way in advance and hire an editor to do all. All of the editing of the whole series that we're working on, and that would, you know that would fix some of these problems, but I also think it's kind of fun to have the process on display here
0: it's a lot of work doing these uh, doing these episodes on gene Wolf and someday some listener perhaps will do a supercut of all the dumb stuff we've ever said. It would be basically the whole show I guess yeah. but, uh, <laughs> at any rate i will uh, I'll answer your question here because I love this question, right? Is she a good romantic fit for weir and i I think that she is right she's she's bookish, Weir is bookish. Uh, She also works in a house that Weir really cares about. So, you know, that's that's something they've got going on there. But also she's adventurous. And I think that this is something that Weir has uh, a little bit of. I think Weir seems to me to be someone who's always game to be a sidekick, on an adventure. And he would actually thrive with someone who's ready to lead the adventure. And Lois, I think, really seems like someone who's ready to lead an adventure. I mean, she does. She says, let's go let's go find this buried treasure that I read about in a, a, a diary from the last century, from the previous century. That's pretty cool. I think that's great for Weir. And in a lot of ways, right, Lois reminds me of Olivia, and I think reminds Weir of Olivia as well.
1: Yeah, I I think she's a great character. And I do think she's a good romantic fit for Weir, because I think she has the same types of uh, evil instincts that (laughs) Weir has. And if they weren't both so selfish, they might find their way to become uh, kind of an evil superpower together. Uh, But I guess I think Cashinsville already has a few of those running the town. And uh, I, I love her as a character. I wish we'd got more of her. I think they're also appropriately matched in terms of age. And that's going to become important as the chapter continues.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about their their ages here, actually, because something that really, really jumped out to me on my my first reading of the book, I mean, not ever, but here for the show, and then all of the subsequent readings for it that you've also been alluding to, Brandon, is that when Weir is thinking about the two of them getting married uh, and, and the extent to which they would be a good fit for each other, he says that obviously they are too old to have kids. And he also has then described Lois as being between 30 and 35. And that just struck me as the, old, the oldest of old-fashioned things that is in this book is the idea that a woman in her 30s is too old to have kids. And that we're clearly at this age is not all that much older than, uh, than I was when, when Finch was born. And uh, I would really struggle to think of more than five people in my life who had kids before thirty. One other thing I want to talk about with, with Lois, Brandon, before we get into more specifics about The Buried Treasure, is just to go back to the uh, fan casting that we were doing in our uh, imaginary adaptation of this film or TV adaptation of this story. I, I wonder who you would have play Lois in the screen adaptation of Peace. So
1: I really think that Rachel Brosnahan would be a really good Fit for this character, uh, she's she's the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. There's something about, uh, as I pointed out when we were reading this, uh, going through the recaps. There's there's kind of screwball energy here, and that show has a lot of. They're trying to capture that screwball energy, I think, as well. You know, the revival of that type of comedy, at least in the '60s, and I think she'd be perfect for for this role. That's who I would cast. What about
0: you, Glenn? So I love this answer that you have, Brandon, because, uh, this is another TV show created by Amy Sherman Palladino. I just said, Lois reminds me a lot of Olivia. And I'm pretty sure that back in chapter two, I said that I wanted Lauren Graham as Lorelai Gilmore to play Olivia. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so we we are, I think, picking up on something that uh, Gene Wolfe is is wanting us to pick up odd here and leaning hard into Amy Sherman Palladino uh, for, for both Olivia and Lois. And and that's, that's fantastic here. But I I went a different route with uh, with this casting, and that is that I could not, I could just could not stop picturing middle aged Erica Durance. As, as Lois here. But that's Erica's... the
1: same thing, right? That's the same <laughs> screwball energy that, it is. that
0: she does with uh, Clark in Smallville. Right. And that's, of course, for for people who have no idea what we're talking about here is that Erica Durance played Lois Lane on Smallville, which was the uh, uh, young Superman show that aired for 10 years or so on the uh, the CW, I guess that was. And that is uh, uh, part of the origin story of our friendship. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I get real Smallville vibes. And I guess this is even the second Superman joke I've tried to make on this On this episode, but no, definitely screwball comedy, I think is exactly what I'm looking for here. And I think it's probably the bit at the restaurant when uh, she clearly has drained her cocktail and then asks for another one (laughs) immediately. And I think it just works for me.
1: Yeah, it's the energy of a date between Lois Lane and Oliver Queen. And uh, now we're going to get super specific and we're transitioning into a Smallville podcast uh, right now in this moment.
0: We're always in danger of that happening. And it probably will happen live on an episode, actually, someday. Right.
1: <laughs> Well, let's let's return to the treasure hunt before we get too off course here. Uh, I want to point out something that I really struck me in this chapter it, as a strange element to the whole novel. Uh, but it's it's really a, a strange part of the treasure hunt. Um, but what's strange? That doesn't feel strange. Is the degree to which Kate Boyne and Kate Doherty, the same person here, cast such a long shadow over this novel? You know, uh, we're going to talk about her here because she or a version of her plays such a large role in the treasure hunt. And I use the term "version" here uh, because there appear to be many versions of Kate Doherty in this novel. So I want to talk about her before we continue on with the with the treasure hunt narrative. So this is a section I'm calling uh, "senses of Kate." I'm going <laughs> to point out these three or four uh, types of senses of her that we get throughout the novel, and then we'll we'll talk about her a little bit. So the first is this Bell Witch, which we get because she's referred to as the old Kate. And this is uh, a version of Kate that is brought up explicitly for the first time in this chapter. Not only do we get the repetition of the old Kate here, but we also get a story about the Bell Witch, Uh, I gave a little history of the Bell Witch in our recap episodes, but I'll point out again that the Bell Witch is one of the most famous American hauntings. It's a famous bit of American folklore and ghost stories. Uh, The story of the Bell Witch still generates enough interest, but you know, in, in popular storytelling to get the occasional movie greenlit or, you know, in episodes of a Ghost Facers type of show. But the point is that we can put the old Kate, uh, the Bell Witch, into the American folklore bucket that we're slowly maybe filling as we read this novel. There's another element of American folklore I'll point out here really quickly in this novel that we haven't mentioned in the recaps. That was the Cardiff Giant. I don't know if we'll talk about that. Uh, The next sense of Kate here is Little Orphan Annie. Kate, at least the Kate that Lewis Gold creates, is supposed to be one and the same with the character who is in the poem by James Whitcomb Riley. Uh, We've talked about this in our recap episode. And of course, this version is entirely made up by Lewis Gold, who is a forger. The next element or sense of Kate that we get is the Irish immigrant, Uh, This version of Kate really gels with what we've learned about her in chapter one, where we see her as Hannah's housekeeper. This Kate is the one who told Hannah the Banshee story. Uh, The moral of that story was in the text, uh, don't try to get people to say stuff they don't want to say, though, of course, there's probably a deeper meaning (laughs) to that Banshee story. And then we should also really consider the sense of Kate and weird sense of Kate as a kind of storyteller, as a kind of maybe almost shamanic storyteller in Cashinsville. Though the degree to which any of these Kates actually exists is something we need to question. But before we do that, uh, you know, I'm not sure if we're really going to see the return of Kate Doherty or the old Kate in this novel. So I really want to get your sense here, Glenn. Of how you feel that Wolf is utilizing this character in the story so far. You know, as I said, she's someone that Weir has never met, but she casts this long
0: shadow in the memoir. Like, what do you think is going on here? Well, I think that principally, Peace is really a story about. Stories, right? We get so many stories within the story, all throughout the novel. Some chapters have a bigger emphasis on that than than others, or maybe that's not even really the fair way to describe that. But that each chapter is doing that in a in a different mode, which actually will be a great thing to to try to dissect in the the, the wrap up episodes when we get there. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that Peace is a story about stories and about storytelling, and Kate is just a really awesome exemplar of this, right? She is the source of several stories that Weir knows. And and then he actually gets those stories from living people in his life, but but different living people. And so we can even see the way that she's impacted so many different people in the community that Weir is living in. And then continuing then to to affect Weir through those people. But then Kate also becomes a character in Someone else's story, uh, you know, it's, it's Louis Gold's story. It's a hoax of a story, right? But still, it is a story that someone else has written about her. So she's a storyteller. She's a character in someone else's story, and this is how stories work. It's also how our lives work, right? I think all of us, as individuals, in some sense, are a collection of stories, while also being characters in other people's stories. And and I think that's what we see here with Kate.
1: I, I think that's a really Great way to put what she's doing here of how she's being used to me. Kate highlights a really complicated element of this novel, which is that we really don't know the degree to which Weir himself is forging the past. Kate is a sole product of Weir's reporting about her, which she knows only from these secondhand stories. And then also she's a product of a forgery. So she really highlights this sense of Weir's own reporting in here, which is to say... Her presence in the story is something that tells us what the stories within stories are supposed to be doing and how weir is communicating them to us and, and This is a really a core question of the novel, uh, not looking at empirical truth of the stories, but this kind of subjective experience and subjective truth about weir 's reporting and she 's this person whose stories have formed so much of Weir's life in some sense, or she's used to highlight the fact to the audience
0: that the stories are the meat of the book. I think that's absolutely right. There's one other thing that I think we should comment on about about Kate Boyne before we we leave her behind and get to you know the buried treasure the quest for the buried <laughs> treasure which is really what she's here for which is just to comment one more time uh, about the way that especially the earlier parts of peace were really concerned with Americana with with what it is to be American with what America itself is all wrapped up in these apocalyptic visions that that we're as having as well and that Kate Boyne serves as I think a representative of a pretty quintessential American story, the story of of, of an immigrant who starts a new life in America, and, and then we're able to trace the people that she had an impact on, we're kind of able to trace her life through the subsequent generations by tracing her stories, the, the genealogy of her stories. And I think that's something that Wolf himself thinks an awful lot about is the story of America. And in some way, Kate is is serving serving that but also that Kate's story is wrapped up in in class concerns as well and is a real contrast to some of the other types of stories that we see that are generated from from people who are not of the the working class
1: that's an excellent point too. And this emphasis on immigration and the waves of immigrants that ended up making this thing we call an American is a deep concern of wolves in this story, and maybe in particular in this chapter. And it's something we'll have an occasion to revisit a little bit later on. Uh, but let's return to the treasure hunt here. We're going to uh, suss out the scattered details of the treasure hunt uh, and then maybe talk about it a little more. I'm going to be uh, bad preacher here and just kind of quote chapter and verses because we've done this, I think, in, in the uh, recap episodes. And hopefully you've, you've read this chapter and you'll be familiar what I'm talking about. So the details of this treasure hunt are given more or less out of order. And we initially learn about where the treasure hunt took place on page two. 59 of this Orb 2012 edition. A few pages later, we get a few more details where we learned that Weir uh, had a gun pulled on him when his shovel hit stone and he was digging in the creek bed. The next thing we learn is that Weir has had the gun, Lois's gun, for a couple of weeks. And we learn that while Sherry Gold is visiting Weir. And then finally, when Weir is in Lewis Gold's house, he says this. He says, I like to think I dissuaded myself from turning Lewis in. And then he tells Lewis, You're doing some real harm, Mr. Gold. You certainly did to Lois and me. But all of us do real harm, and most of us don't have your class. That's a very strange thing to say. There's also something that Weir says that Lois has been essentially deleted, erased from his future, but she will always be a part of his past. And really what he means is also present. The burden of her existence is something that he will have to carry with him for some reason. So... What do we think really happened to Lois Glenn? Did she really move away after a couple of weeks, or you know, in the intervening weeks between the uh, gun being pulled on him and 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 we're taking the gun away from
0: her, or did something else happen here? I think the question really it hinges on what actually happened that night, and and we just don't no or at least weir does not tell us in any explicit sense not yet maybe this is something that we will get in chapter 5 but we really want to know what happened that night and weir does tell us that what happened that night whatever that is has deeply affected him but yeah we want to know right how did weir end up with the gun like like just logistically physically what happens how is it that weir ends up with the gun why does he still have it but then also you know we wonder about lois's motives, her, her reaction, right? What's the next day like after after this business with digging up the treasure or, or you know trying to dig up treasure? There is no treasure, it turns out, and and this gun being pulled. Why does that motivate Lois to to move away? And I think we can think of a lot of motivations for that, a lot of emotions that would lead us to make a choice similar to that. Uh, in, embarrassments uh, about the whole thing might be one of them. But I do also think that something that we might want to consider would be that she feels danger from, from Weir in some, in some way.
1: Yeah. It's really unclear to me whether or not she moves away or whether because of this business about her being erased from his future, which a really bad breakup can feel that way. But, uh, Weir's love, even if it's like a crush, um, uh, on Lois is something that's also called into question by Weir himself as he's writing this memoir. But I don't know if she moved away or if we're supposed to get this sense that Weir killed her and hid the body and uh, held on to the gun and you know all the all this other stuff that we can imagine happening. And so I I really just don't I don't know. I think there there's evidence. Um, throughout this whole text, that Weir, besides Bobby Black, maybe has killed somebody who's evil. Uh, and, and we can talk about that when we do the final wrap up. But Lois doesn't seem like that character to me. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm, really, I'm really willing to believe that she did move away, though Weir's the only one talking about it when people ask about her.
0: Right. As we said, we've both been uh, immersing ourselves in cozy mysteries. And so I I also went to this place thinking, did, did Weir kill her? Is that it, what happened? I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have to be murder. There's a gun, you know, just right. in the situation at all, right? Uh, it's at night, it could have been an accident. But I, I don't think that that's what happened here. And the reason that I don't think that is that if that's true, Weir's being really stupid about trying to not Run into legal trouble for this, right? Weir's being real dumb because he's walking around telling people that Lois left and bringing her up continuously, and he's going specifically to Louis Gold to accuse him of having forged the diary. And I think that if Weir just killed Lois and uh, wants to get away with that, that you just you, you don't bring it up. You just let everything go. And I think that his motivation really in going to see Lewis Gold to confront him about the forgery is that he's angry. He's angry that what could have been a real romance went sour because of this hoax. And to me, that's the action of someone who's been broken up with, uh, not someone who has just killed somebody, killed the person he's, he's dating, whether intentionally or accidentally.
1: Yeah, the, the the way Weir writes about Lois makes me feel like he's the type of person who can only imagine a real romance once the breakup takes place. you yes, know he's, yes <laughs> he's, he's exactly that type of personality who's like it could have been great, but it's over you know except when he's in it he's miserable and uh, thinking about other women after he leaves or you know whatever he's he's a bad he's a bad actor here uh, but this line when Weir says I like to think I dissuaded myself. Which, you know, we know Lewis asks if Sherry came and talked to Weir, um, but Weir says, I I dissuaded myself. And, And to me, this could be read as someone who's saying... You know bad things happen on both sides. Let's never talk about this again and in fact, if I were to turn you in, it would lead to people asking what happened to lois and that's something I don't want to happen also uh, and so there there is a real ambiguity here that I think Wolf is intentionally highlighting because no matter what happened that night, Lois pulled a gun on Weir at least by Weir's reporting that's to me that you break up with somebody when they do that, uh, if they're making you dig a ditch and pull a gun on you, that relationship's over, no matter what. And so something bad happened. you know, maybe he got her in the knee with a shovel or something, but he got the gun away from her, which means uh, some kind of scuffle took place. This relationship wasn't going
0: anywhere. I agree. That's that's solid relationship advice there. I think. But I, I don't think that we have to assume a scuffle took place. There are lots of other possibilities about how he got the got the gun. And so that's that's an assumption that I'm I'm not willing to make at this point. And I, I do think that the fact that this is all and, and by this I mean the visit to Lewis Gold, the business with confronting him about the, the hoax, that's happening three weeks after this night, right? So I, I just, I don't think I can read that line the way that you're reading it either, because I think that Weir has already had all of these thoughts, right? If, if Weir has killed Lois yeah, in, intentionally or accidentally in this moment, he's already gone over all of this in his mind. He's had a, a time to get over the immediate uh, panic and the immediacy of the heightened emotions about it and to think rationally about what he wants to do, to, to think of, think about his next steps like an engineer. And what he has settled on is confronting Lewis Gold. And so to me, that just indicates pretty strongly that he's not worried about police involvement or anyone else finding anything out about this. I'll say one more thing, though, too. I think about just something that colors the way that we read this scene reading it now in the the 2020s, uh, being of a different generation than than Wolf and not being certainly in this world of the 1950s. And I think for us, the idea of being middle-aged and just quitting your job with basically no notice and just leaving and thinking that you're going to be okay, I think strikes most of us as a bad idea gives most of us today a bit of anxiety. But I think in the 1950s, I think even in the 1970s, you just quit your job, move to another town and find a cheap apartment to live in because it's easy to find apartments and they're cheap. And it's easy to find jobs that can pay the rent on apartments and you just reinvent yourself and it's it's no problem.
1: Yeah, I I think there's a lot of arguments for she actually moved to another town or or we're killed her and and that can go to you know her character motivations you know her work on the genealogies all this stuff why would she give that up but she's the type of woman who is willing to pull a gun on somebody over a buried treasure and it was like super excited to do that like she brought the gun with her because she was afraid of weir maybe because he always carries that knife on him. But no matter how you're looking at it, there's a lot of depth here. And um, I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation on the forums. Before we transition (laughs) into something else, I I just want to ask you, Glenn... Did this business with Lois, just the whole relationship in the treasure hunt, um, the way it maybe gives us a sense of Weir's middle life and middle age, did anything about this whole episode tell you anything else about Weir's character that we haven't really seen so far in, in the book?
0: This chapter in particular had me really comparing Weir to Wolf, and it's because Weir in this chapter is at the age that Wolf actually is as he's writing this story, and uh, also, it's the age I am now, right? So I couldn't help but think about, the, well, the lives of 40-year-old dudes, basically, right? And the different the different varieties of them.
1: Well, one of the things, I mean, just as you were saying that, what what really jumped out to me was the... Deflation of participating in putting on like a fantasy identity. And this is related to the Margaret Lauren thing because the the first time we're in middle age goes to confront Gold about this, he's trying to act like Sam Spade and a hard boiled detective. And he just realizes in that moment that that's really dumb, right? Like he goes (laughs) home, it's like you can't pretend to be that. That's cool when you're like 15 to 25 and figuring out what kind of persona you need to be. When you're in your 40s, when you've hit middle age, uh, you don't need to be messing around with that kind of persona game anymore. (laughs) And I think we're really realizes that. And it's just kind of fun to see. And also that he kind of hasn't completely abandoned that energy. like He hasn't fully matured. I think it demonstrates that as well. He's never really taken on anything big in his life. He's, he's failed at romance. He's just taken the job he was given by his uncle that was kind of guaranteed tea to him. And I think that's going to really play into when we evaluate Weir's life when we get to the final wrap-up episodes. And it may even play into later in this episode, when we think about how Weir confronts Lewis Gold. Uh, But let's transition at this point. And since we're talking about Weir's romantic life, let's just move deeper into that and check in with some of Weir's romantic interests, maybe with Margaret Lorne, uh, but also his, I don't know, maybe erotically charged moments or erotic imagination that he has about his aunt. Olivia. This is a section I'm calling Weir and Eros. Uh, and really, I just want to talk about the two characters that we don't really have an occasion to talk about under any other heading here. So so I'm going to talk about Aunt Olivia first, and then uh, Glenn, you're going to talk about Margaret Lorne's appearance in this chapter. There's a lot I have to say here, and uh, hopefully it won't be too bad for anyone listening here. Uh, As I've pointed out already, we learned that two years pass between Olivia's marriage to Smart and when Weir's parents return. And there are a number of passages here where Weir turns his thoughts to Aunt Olivia, and the imagination that he has about her or what he's thinking about is erotic. Uh, One is about her having sex with Peacock on picnics. And this is a trick that Weir hopes to use himself in Margaret Lauren in previous chapters, but also with Lois in this chapter. And then there's the moment, uh, the section of the text where Weir thinks about uh, Aunt Olivia, or really what I should say is that he is filled with images of her as he and Lois drive to Gold's to pick up Cape Point's diary. And that's because they're near the place where she was struck by a car and died. But beyond that, I think this passage about Aunt Olivia is really kind of thorny to handle. But I do think just reading it, it flows beautifully from one moment to the next. And this passage, I think, is so strange in part because it starts with Weir interrupting his own conversation with Lois in the past and it concludes with him telling his audience us that he can't write anymore about what he was supposed to be focused on which is the treasure ton. So just on a structural level, it's a very strange, it kind of moves from, uh, uh, one mode of the present, which is Weir's reflection on the past, even though he's writing it as though he's there and moves us into this other real, more real present or the meta present of Weir as an old man. And then Weir says this after he reveals he's unsettled by his thoughts about Aunt Olivia, which we're going to get to those actual thoughts in a moment, I promise. I'm just (laughs) trying to cushion them in the context here. Weir says this, everything we do is unimportant, I know, but some things are, if not more important, at least more immediate than others. And so I must tell writing alone in this empty room, my pen scratching on the paper like a mouse in the wall, that I am very ill, sick, I think, than I have ever been before, sicker even than I was this winter before Eleanor Bold's tree fell. Now, I think there are two things going on in this paragraph. One of the things that's going on is that Wolf is reminding us that Eleanor Bold planted that tree, and that's going to also pay off later in this chapter. But the main thing that's going on here is Wolf is also showing us we're... Actively suppressing something that he does not want to fully reveal. And that Weir's style of conveyance to us is sort of based on this notion. Things will arise because they're immediate to him, and one memory is leading to another. And then Weir takes this active role of cutting them off when something more immediate comes to the fore, but also when he doesn't want to think about what he's thinking about any longer. So all of that's a really crazy aside and intro uh, to the mechanical way that this section with Aunt Olivia functions. But as I said, what I really want to talk about here, because this is about Weir and Eros, is the way that Eros finds its way into this passage and disturbs Weir. Weir is focused on the way that Aunt Olivia has changed in the two years that he lived with her in Smart before his parents returned from Europe. And he notes in particular that her, to use a philosophical term, appetitive desires grow or expand, or she's more willing to indulge them after she marries smart. Uh, Weir points out that Aunt Olivia has put on weight. And there have been readers of Wolf who have commented, I think, on the way Wolf is unsympathetic towards uh, married women I don't think that's fair. I I think Joan Gordon has the right idea here. She rightly points out that, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, when you go from eating pickles for every meal to eating meals prepared by a French chef in a more domestic setting, uh, you'd find it difficult to stay slim, too. (laughs) Uh, But Weir also says that Olivia started an affair with uh, Mr. McAfee, after she got married. And in this moment, we're also reminded that the store name has changed since then because it's owned by Weir via inheritance from Smart. But anyway, the point is that Wolf really emphasizes that Olivia's appetitive desires, that is the desire we have when we have an appetite, have grown since she uh, gets married and begins to experience uh, a different level of wealth. And she even starts to use Weir as a bath attendant, which could be a sign of her kind of relying on servants more in this life. And as Weir is certainly reaching adolescence at this point, he notices the changes in his aunt's breasts and body over these two years. And this is the moment when he gets distracted and cuts off the thoughts So I think that the way that Weir writes about this moment, it leaves us as readers with a feeling that there's some real erotic tension that Weir doesn't really know what to do with regarding his Aunt Olivia, especially when we get a line later on in the chapter from Gold uh, that's this. Gold says like, men retain a lifelong interest in the things that stirred them as children. This is in reference to boys looking at um, pictures of uh, the nude Aphrodite, and Weird says, I know. Uh, So this whole setup (laughs) is not entirely innocent to me. But I think what I'm really left with here is a sense of Olivia's loneliness You know, when she's leaving Smart to fool around with old lovers and then having her nephew attend to her while she's in the bath and Smart is in the basement fiddling around in his laboratory with dehydrated potatoes and some kind of orange flavoring, you know. And as I've said a few times before, I think there's a real cause, real intentionality behind scenes like this. And part of it does have to do with like evil people being bound together in the afterlife. If one is murdered by another, I'm not ready to discuss why that might be an intention behind a scene like this yet. uh, We're going to have to wait to our final wrap up episodes to make sense of some of that and some of the mysteries left lingering. But I do think that it's purposeful that this scene echoes something with Tilly and that uh, there's erotic tension between weir or at least on weir's part with his aunt especially in this moment uh after she's married with uh smart so much of what weir thinks about in this chapter with olivia is her having sex with other men except not smart
0: yeah there there's a lot going on here that uh, is is fairly uncomfortable i think and and so much of it between the lines as you're you're pointing out there brandon w- one one thing that jumps out to me about this too is that the place that weir takes lois on their first date is milichek's it's the restaurant run by the the person who was the the chef for olivia and you know there are a lot of lot of things that might go into that decision but but i think certainly one of the things that we we should see there is simply that Weir associates things from Olivia or adjacent to Olivia with romance and sexuality in some way. And so that's that's where he takes Lois. I, I don't think that's the only reason he's made that choice. In fact, I think that's not even a conscious reason why he's made that choice, but I think that it, it stands out for sure. The other thing that stands out to me too is that we had talked a lot in Chapter 2 about Weir's Fascination with Stuart Blaine. The idea that he really loved Stuart Blaine's house, the one that was torn down, and models part of his own mansion on it, and he admires Stuart Blaine. And all of that continuing even after the stuff with Stuart Blaine that actually happens in this chapter which i just find rather unconscionable and frankly kind of mysterious but but what we were talking about there was was why why is he modeling himself or admiring or aspiring to be Stuart Blaine rather than either Jimmy McAfee or Professor Peacock here and you know it struck me that Peacock was probably the person you know you should be striving to be. But here we actually get that in this chapter, that he he is now at least modeling some bit of his own dating habits on what he observed Peacock doing back when he was eight, nine, 10 years old.
1: Right. And maybe part of the reason he likes Stuart Blaine so much is that Stuart Blaine never had sex with his mother figure, you know, the maternal figure in his life. And there's no, uh, I don't know, weird jealousy there. I mean, Weir's really screwed up on this front. I think that much is really clear from this text. Even in chapter two, we saw the ways in which Weir's conception of an ideal woman is sort of modeled on, at least physically, Aunt Olivia's beauty during this time period. And we even see that in the way that uh, some of the imagery around Margaret Lorne echoes some of the imagery around Aunt Olivia.
0: Yeah, we should talk about Margaret Lauren, who, you know, we now at this point understand that, that we're dated in some capacity anyway in, in high school for sure, maybe even a little bit earlier than that in, in, in junior high, or I guess what, what the kids today call middle school. I guess, I guess everyone today calls it middle school. It's not just the kids, but at any rate, uh, when, perhaps when he's a little bit younger than that. And most of this then is happening after Weir has moved back into his, his grandmother's house with his parents when they have returned from their their trip. But that Weir has been pining for Margaret Lorne his entire adult life. He went away to to college, but he had assumed that after college, he was going to return to Cashinsville and marry Margaret Lorne. But that is not what has happened. She's married someone else. She started a family. But Weir is still really fixated on her. He tells us without any embarrassment or shame that he has sent her flowers anonymously. Also that he calls her and doesn't say anything. He calls her just to hear her voice and you know she can hear him breathing and you know, tries to confront him and so on. All of that, I think, strikes us today as one hundred percent creepy and zero percent romantic. I think that line. Uh, I think those percentages perhaps played out a little bit differently when Wolf was writing this book. And uh, try to put myself back in that context when I when I read these scenes and try to think about what Wolf wants us to think of we're in these moments. But nonetheless, that's a thing that he's doing. They do occasionally actually encounter each other out in town. You know, I don't know shopping or whatever people do out in town, and they're polite to each other, but. But distant when they when they had this encounter, and it's clear that that really really hurts. Weir and then Weir even just says explicitly that he doesn't understand what went wrong. That when they were dating in high school, he felt like there was this plan and just this understanding of what their lives were going to be like, and then that didn't happen, and he can't figure out what went wrong. It's, it's heartbreaking, but also I think we can see what went wrong in some ways. I think we can, too. I mean, one
1: thing that jumped out to me in this chapter about Margaret Lauren... For, well, first, I want to say that um, even though Wolf may had not seen any Brian De Palma movies while he was writing this novel, uh, breathing into the telephone line has always been creepy, as far <laughs> as I know, and uh, maybe didn't need to, to learn that lesson from films. But yeah, I think Weird doesn't think he's creepy uh I think Wolf wants the audience who he expects to have had some sort of moral character formation in their lives <laughs> to encounter Weir as creepy at this point um, but what really strikes me about Margaret Lorne in this chapter uh isn't really about Weir but it's uh, Weir's portrayal of her as sort of having a lot of uh Interest in, in in like darkness. She has like a dark imagination, and I get this feeling from the scene with the old Kate, where she, the Bell Witch, where she believes the Bell Witch haunted her house. Her dad had to hire an Indian half Indian woman to come and clear the house from evil spirits, and that the uh, rock at the base of their steps is really a tombstone. And th- so this is the second instance where we see Margaret Lauren like really having some action to take, some dialogue to offer. Uh, This is really only the second time. The rest of the book is really Wolf thinking about Margaret Lauren or how she looks. The only other time she's thinking about what kind of crazy horror creature would hatch from the Chinese egg if it were real. And so these are like the only two moments we get where maybe we see what Wolf is attracted to in Margaret Lauren. And it might be her her darkness, in some sense.
0: Though also in 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 this case with the the stone, right? The Bell Witch and the stone. He's he's definitely not following the rules of improv here. This is a this is a no-but <laughs> no but situation, right. and that's that's not good dating. That's not that's it's, not good dating. It's not good dating. It's bad conversation. And he did the
1: same thing with the goat and in, in the in the Chinese egg scene. He's <laughs> constantly <laughs> shutting her
0: down, and now he won't even talk to her. Weir's not a good dude here. <laughs> these, <Yeah. laughs> these interactions with women. <laughs> but yeah, I think we have figured out uh, where Weir thought they had a lot more chemistry, perhaps, than than Margaret did. And as soon as he was out of town, she started dating somebody else, I think is, is what happened. Yeah, I think it is what happened. And 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 I think, you know, when we get to the end of the novel, we'll
1: have to think about this uh, proclamation or declaration that Weir says, where the real question isn't whether or not we should live, you know, to be or not to be. It's what went wrong. And I, I think that's a good question to ask uh, around middle age, though, uh, according to... <laughs> According to our uh, culture the, the you know this quarter life crisis that people are having at twenty five they 're starting to ask this question and uh, it 's too early it 's too soon but forty five is probably the right time the The last of these erotic characters here or or characters that we can classify under eros and weir is sherry gold and i 'm sure we 'll have a lot to say about her and her role in this chapter, but as she 's a member of the gold family. We're going to have to wait till next episode. Uh, So that was the promise at the top of the show. Next episode, we're going to be talking about the Gold family and some other stuff too. And we'll continue along and get into Weir's relationship with Sherry Gold. But that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buda.
0: And I'm Glenn McDorman And yeah, next time we will uh, have part two, the final part of our chapter four discussion. I'm super excited to talk about the golds. They're kind of the, the elephant in the room here, so to speak. So yeah, we'll be getting into that shortly. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.